Well, as has been stated before, today is the first Sunday in Advent, uh, first day in the Christian calendar, and Advent, of course, that Latin word for coming. And I've said uh, at the call to worship time that we're looking at two comings. We're, uh, we're anticipating during Advent the season of waiting to celebrate the first coming, where on Christmas we celebrate that Jesus, I mean, the miracle of God himself putting on flesh and dwelling among us and being born in that humble way, that's what we're celebrating. But we're also, as a people, looking forward. Um, we reach back and we say, you know what? God created the heavens and the earth, created all things, created people. He's been faithful to humanity throughout all those millennia of people rebelling over and over again. He's been faithful to me in my rebellion. He's been faithful enough to come and fulfill his promises to, to come in the flesh. I, we, we gather all that up and then we project forward and we say, because he's been faithful in the past... We believe him when he says he's going to return and he's going to recreate and make all things new. And so those are the two uh, comings that we anticipate during this season of Advent. Now, how does one actually prepare themselves well to celebrate well and to, uh, to be ready for when Jesus returns? A few weeks ago, Corey and I were uh, in Seattle for a weekend away, and we stumbled upon the Klondike Museum. You guys been there on 2nd and Jefferson? It's a hidden gem if you're in the area, and it's free. It's a national park thing. So anyway, we're in the uh, Klondike Museum, and we're watching the video and talking to people. And uh, many of you know this, but in 1896, gold was discovered in the Klondike. And as soon as it was the, the news about that discovery rippled down in, across the world, over 30,000 people dropped what they were doing and traveled from as far away as Australia, South America. A, a group of women came from England all by themselves on a steamer through the Panama Canal. And so all of this, all of this stuff, all of these people dropping what they're doing and going to uh, Alaska where they could then take the trail to the Klondike. They had no idea what they were in for. They were completely unprepared. Thousands of horses died, and there's this valley of bones, of horse bones on the way there to the Klondike. Hundreds of men and women died on the way. And out of those 30,000 people, only a few hundred actually made it what we would consider very rich, where they could quit their day jobs when they got done. They were completely unprepared. Uh, but because of their legacy, because these explorers went out and wrote down, um, next time if I ever do the gold rush again, and the, I wouldn't travel this trail in the winter in Alaska. So they left all these notes and, and advice and maps. Many of the maps we still have of that area come uh, from that era, from these types of explorers. As we prepare then uh, to celebrate the coming, the two comings of Jesus, uh, I'm thankful that we are not like those people uh, going to the Klondike for the first time, that some people have gone before us. In fact, millions of people have gone before us who have followed Jesus faithfully. Some of them have done it better than others. And so we have all of these lessons, all of these examples of people who have gone before us. Um, some things we say, oh, we don't want to be like that person. Or we say, oh, I want to emulate that person. And tonight we're going to take a look at the story of Zechariah out of Luke's gospel. And we're going to see, uh, I think we're going to learn some things from him about how to prepare our hearts uh, during the season of Advent. So stand with me, please. I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 23. It goes like this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiha, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, 
and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God on the accompanied uh, order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside in the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe in my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you that you are a God who spoke to people and gave revelation a long time ago. And you're the God who continues to speak today. I pray, Lord, that we would learn from Zacharias even now as we're about to hear this word. And that we would be open to you. And that rather than challenging you and saying, yeah, but, or how can this be? Lord, that we would have soft hearts and open minds. And that you would give us courage to obey. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Luke, the gospel writer, history writer, introduces this whole scene to us by giving us some facts about who the story is about. He introduces us, of course, to Elizabeth and Zechariah. We learn some things that they were married, that they were righteous and upright in their status before God. And we learned of their great sadness and personal shame that the two of them were unable to conceive a child together. Zechariah was a priest. And in our story, uh, the, the setting is such that it's one of the weeks where Zechariah was serving in the temple in his particular division, which is the division of Abiha. Now, 
In that day, in the first century, there were roughly 18,000 priests. And they didn't all live in Jerusalem. They lived all around Judea and the countryside and Galilee, all these different places. And they had their local duties. But twice a year, two weeks a year, each division of priests would come to Jerusalem and serve their time in the temple. And they would do all kinds of different things from cleaning to leading prayer groups. And some of them, in fact, very few of them would get to do the most special jobs like go into the Holy of Holies and offer incense to the Lord. In fact, some priests never got that right, that opportunity in their whole career. Now, the way that they went about this was they cast lots, which think dice or little sticks that tell you things, right? And this isn't magic. In fact, in Hebrew thought, the idea was this uh, is, is a decision or a decision we need to make or a choice we need to make between people, and we don't want any of our own bias to uh, uh, dictate the outcome. And so we are going to believe that when we cast these lots amongst the priests of this division of Abiha, that whomever comes up out of this is not just luckily gets to go do this thing, but they are chosen by God himself to go into the inner chamber of the temple. And that's what happens here to Zacharias. So he believes, as he is entering into the Holy of Holies to offer incense, he believes, his colleagues believe, and those who are praying outside, the laity believe, that this guy is chosen by God to go in and offer the incense uh, offering to the Lord. So there he is in the temple of God doing his priestly duties when all of a sudden the angel of the Lord appears to him. And like most biblical encounters of an encounter between a human and an angel of the Lord, he is terrified. I mean, these angels are not the chubby, fat little cherubs that we see at the Christian bookstore. These are warriors of light, and people freak out when they're in the presence of a warrior of light. In fact, the, the Greek word behind that he was scared or frightened or troubled it, it really causes him to shake so much that one might lose control of a bodily function or something like that. But we don't need to focus on that. But anyway, it's just this, this terrifying shaking by Zechariah as he is encountering this angel. And the angel communicates three things to Zacharias. First, do not be afraid. In other words, I am here on an errand of blessing, an errand of good news. I'm not here to judge your brother, okay? Be well. Shalom to you. Do not be afraid. Second, he says, your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. This second petition, I, it resonates with me and I hope it does with you because it's, it's interesting that God shows up in the temple of, or the angel shows up in the temple of God and he addresses Zechariah's particular concern. Here is a man who I imagine from the day he was married wanted to have children, wanted to have a son. He and his wife were unable to do this. And the angel says, I have heard you. I have heard your plea. Your wife is going to have a son. And that tells me that this, this God who created the heavens and the earth is also aware of us in our personal, particular situation. And he may not answer everything the way we would like, but he hears you and he knows you. You are not anonymous to this God. The third thing we learn is that this son that he's to name John, which literally means God is gracious, this son is going to be great 
in the sight of the Lord. So not only does Zacharias get a kid, he gets one who's going to be great in the sight of the Lord, and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even while in his mother's womb, and he's going to pave the way for the saving Lord. Let me tell you this. When a priest like Zechariah goes to the temple during his two-week duty, there are certain prayers that they would pray. And even particularly for that prayer when the incense offering is going up, is he is calling out to God to rescue the people of God. Because at that time, the people were oppressed by the Roman Empire. And so he's been lifting up these prayers to God, and God has heard him. Just like God heard the Israelites when they were in captivity in Egypt and sent Moses to rescue them out of captivity, so now he's saying, Zacharias, I have heard your pleas. I am sending a Savior. Your son is going to pave the way for that Savior. What an amazing encounter, right? Here's Zechariah. He's in doing his duty, and an angel comes and says, you know what? All the things you've been longing for, praying for, God has heard and they're coming to pass in your lifetime. Oh. Now, let's take a look at Zechariah's reaction. Zechariah replies to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Which means she's old too. And don't think, guys, that you should say that, uh, this is my wife, she's advanced in years. or anything. That's just never an okay way to uh, address a woman. But anyway, so he's saying mechanically, how can this be? It's impossible. It can't happen. When you think about it, Zechariah was a man who had been longing for a child his whole married life. He was a priest whose vocation in life led him to faithfully communicate the stories of God and the promises of God to the people of God. That was his job. As a priest, he communicates the story of God, the promises of God to the people of God. That's what he does, all right? And it's amazing to me that he doesn't at this point express awe or wonder or appreciation or excitement at this news that he'd been waiting for his whole career. Instead, he asks this angel two things. One, he asks for a sign. You know what you ask for signs for is to quench the doubts that you have. He asks for a sign. And second, he wants knowledge. He wants the mechanics of it all. In other words, tell me how this can happen because old people, our age, Elizabeth and my age, we don't have kids. Zechariah the priest had the entire Old Testament at his disposal. He would preach most often, I'm sure, from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The man who preached sermons from cre- about creation about Noah, about Moses parting the Red Sea, and all the crazy weird stories of Elijah and Elisha, the man who spoke words of mystery and miracles and the majesty of God, who preached on the opening of Sarah's womb and the opening of Rebecca's womb and the opening of Rachel's womb, the one who had been chosen by God through lots to enter into the Holy of Holies himself, By the way, if you were to ask Zechariah, where on earth, if there's any place I could meet with the living God, would you recommend? He would say, God most likely would dwell in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So this man who preaches all these amazing stories of God's miracles, who goes into the holiest holy place where you would expect to meet God if you're going to meet him anywhere, that same man, the priest, struggles with the perspective that God still really works 
in regular people's lives, in his own time, in his own way. Oh, how we forget. How we compartmentalize. Aren't we all guilty of that sometimes? But we've got kind of this realm where we talk about God right now in church, right? Or Bible study time. Or maybe you have a quiet time. And those times are reserved, and rightfully so, for reading the stories of God and praying and asking God to be part of the things of our lives, lifting up our concerns and our praises to Him. But then what do we do? We, we go out and we work and we do the things of regular, ordinary, mundane life. And it's so easy to forget that, oh yeah, I prayed about this. God just might answer my prayer. Or, oh, God is... I, I, I believe the Bible says that Jesus is risen and reigning right now, but wow, how surprising. He actually showed up and did something in my life. Zachariah appears to have the same shell shock. And I tell you, even as a pastor, I struggle with this myself. I struggle with this myself, and I'm sure you do too, that there's times when you just realize, I just went through a whole like six-hour period or a whole day or a whole week and didn't even recognize the presence of God in my life. In this age of information, we are much more interested, I think as a whole, this is a generalization, but much more interested in surrounding ourselves with knowledge rather than seeking wisdom, which is the right application of that knowledge. We find security in categorizing and organizing information, buying into the lie that if we can understand something and explain something and categorize something, then we have power over that something. We desire facts rather than mystery. And I've got a fact for you. It comes out of the Bible. The fact is that God is a God who often works in mysterious ways. We cannot just categorize Him. We can't box Him. We can't own Him. We can't put Him in the God file and just figure, expect to have Him all figured out and how He works. Zechariah, in this story, can't explain his encounter with Gabriel. It doesn't necessarily match his experience or his theology. It's outside the box of his denomination. Uh, they don't do those kind of things in uh, whatever, the division of Abiha. Uh, he, doesn't, he never had a class in seminary or a Sunday school teacher tell him, here's what to do if an angel shows up when you're offering incense in the Holy of Holies. Now, what is the response? What is the right response he should have had to this situation? Last summer, I took uh, Sophia and Stella, my two older daughters, camping at Lake Perigen, uh, which is outside of Winthrop, if you didn't know that. And I got permission from Sophia to share this story. Uh, Stella went to bed, and it was a clear night, and the state campground is in this wonderful valley, and uh, if it's a clear night, boy, you can really see the stars. And so Sophia wanted to stay up with me and watch shooting stars. She was eight years old, um, and so we're sitting in our camp chairs, and you know, your eyes begin to adjust, and also it just started to get darker and darker, and sooner or later, we could see the Milky Way just spiraling, not moving, but you know, you see the spiral of it, and Sophia had been reading uh, a few months earlier about the sun and our solar system, and she was teaching me. She was telling me, you know, our sun is a medium-sized star, and boy, dad, how many of those you think are actually bigger than our sun? I'm like, I know. Out of, uh, uh, scientists say there's between two and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. Do you think there's planets around them? Well, maybe, I don't know. And then I tried to explain light years, and how far, <laughs> I didn't even know if I understand that. But And then, so we're talking about all this stuff, and then I said, you know, honey, there is an estimated between 100 
and 200 billion galaxies, each with these hundreds of billions of stars in them. And she began to get frustrated. She began to get agitated that, and probing me with questions that she couldn't categorize that vastness of the universe. And then I, I felt a frustration inside of me that I'm unable to communicate well the vastness of the universe. And, and I thought to myself, when is the last time that I really had an experience like this? When I really took the time to, to ponder the vastness of the creation of God. And our frustration then, I realized she was getting choked up and I was getting choked up. And she moved over onto my lap. And I don't want you to think that we're like the super spiritual family. Like usually the kids are just fighting and you know, that's just, we're just regular people. But I am sharing you with this, this moment that we had. And, and, and all we could do were two things. One is very quickly, nothing super spiritual. We just said, you know, let's just thank God for this moment, for creating this. It's so big. It's so amazing. And the fact that God... We may, we may not be able, in fact, we may never as a human race be able to categorize all of this vastness. But God made all of those stars and all of those planets and all of those things that we've never even seen before. He knows everyone. That's how big he is. And then we did something that was unscripted. We just comfortably sat in silence. And it was one of the most beautiful moments that I've shared with her just recognizing that we were in the presence of one who made something bigger than we could even comprehend. And if that one made something bigger than we could comprehend, then he must be so much bigger than that himself. And sometimes the proper response, when you are in the midst of holiness like that, when you're in the midst of, of realizing who God, sometimes that is the right response, is just silence. And just receive it. And don't try and explain it away. In Zechariah's case, he was not silent before this angel of God who came with great news, great mysterious news. And he's punished with forced silence. Think about how much you use your words. And I know as a pastor, I use words all the time for my job. And I imagine Zechariah, uh, you know, his speech, his ability to talk was his way of managing his life, was his way of ordering ceremony, was his way of leading others. And when you can't speak, though, then you can't really lead well. When you can't speak and get your point across, what are you? You're a receiver. All you can do is receive. And on top of being mute, many scholars believe that Zechariah was also rendered deaf. We look at, uh, ahead to Luke 1, 62, where Elizabeth has John, and, and she says, I'm going to name him John. And they say, no, you should name him Zechariah. And she says, no, I'm going to name him John. And then they go to Zechariah, and they don't say, what do you think we should name him? They gesture to him, insinuating, implying that he also cannot hear what they're saying. Regardless, that's really not the point. The point is, think about the way that you use information, the way that you use words. We use words to get our needs communicated from a very early age. Anyone with an infant knows that they know how to use cries to get what they want. We use words to persuade and sometimes, let's admit it, to manipulate. We use our speech to make ourselves known, to make a mark in a world full of speakers and communicators and bloggers and people with opinions at work and at home and what we're having for dinner and what we're going to do on the weekend, all of these things. We use words to get our way. 
And then we also take in speech, whether it's podcasts or music or television or media on the computer. We're constantly taking in information and putting, um, putting it out. And one thing I think, again, this is a generalization to our culture, one thing we often lack is time for reflection. We often lack perspective that what we are saying might be hurried and unhelpful. That what we're taking in through all this media is sometimes deforming and distracting rather than just merely neutral informing like we might think it is. And even if the content we are ingesting is a great podcast from your favorite preacher or uh, your favorite theologian or something like that, or maybe it's Christian radio or something, the most important thing that we're filling our time with is the voice of God. We're, We're blocking out the ability to just hear from God when we're filling ourselves with all this other stuff. Silence is one of the ways we prepare ourselves to receive Jesus. I know if you've heard about this trend, these silent chambers that you can rent, they're kind of like, I don't know, the way I've seen them described as like a tanning bed looking thing or a coffin and you lay in them and it's sensory deprivation. So I know it sounds like Guantanamo or something, but it's, you pay for it and, uh, and you rent these things, you sit in them and it's like filled with water over your ears and you have plugs in and it's supposed to be completely silent, no visual stimulation either. And um, people who are really into like, oh, like the brain potential say that uh, you can get the most out of your brain in one of these chambers because you're not distracted by anything else. So you can focus on, I don't know, whatever creative juices or or whatever. And so it's this completely silent chamber where you're just listening to your own thoughts. That's not the type of silence I'm talking about. I do not need a device that helps me hear my own voice louder. My own ideas are the things that get me in trouble most often. All right? So this type of silence that we're talking about is creating space so that God can speak. Amen? We don't need to hear ourselves any louder than we normally do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote. He says, silence ultimately means nothing but waiting for God's word and coming away blessed by God's word. Silence before the word will have its effect on the whole day. It's the word of God that we're listening for. The word of God. The discipline of silence is the discipline of dying to my own striving for control. It's an act of faith that if I create space in my soul for God to do his work in me, he will do his work in me. It's an act of faith that if you and I create space for God to do his work in us, he'll do his work in us. Trust me, I get it. If I'm not using words, and that includes email and texting, if what I do, I'm not getting stuff done. At least I feel that way. I'm not managing leaders. I'm not communicating, hey, what worship set are we doing this week, right, worship leaders? We're going over the email. We're meeting face-to-face. If I'm not actively using words, I'm not uh, counseling. I'm not helping train up leaders. I'm not doing any of the things that, that I'm supposed to do. And it is a tension every morning to carve out space and to believe that when I am silent with the Word of God, that something is happening in me that cannot happen when I'm just busy and on the go. That is the step of faith that this text is calling us to. Silence, as you know, 
is especially difficult in this fast-paced life and even more difficult in this fast-paced time of year. It's a counter-cultural choice that we have to decide we want to practice. It might involve major sacrifices, like waking up 15 minutes earlier than you normally do. It might require cutting something out of your life that is technically unnecessary, like watching a little less television or putting a great book, even a good book, aside a little bit earlier so that you can make time for this. That's one of the things. I mean, Corey and I are just like you. Like, don't look at me like, oh, he's a pastor. You probably, it's hard. And, you know, we get stuck on the Netflix thing, and then it's like, oh, there's one more show in this series. Let's, let's binge watch or something. So the, the other week, we actually put up, this is just a discipline that we were trying. We have a couple days a week that are our TV days. And then we block them out to read books. And something weird happened. So uh, had some silence in the morning, which hasn't been an issue. But then when we blocked out for reading, normally when I could watch an hour-long show, I get 10 minutes into this book, and I'm just, and it's a good book, and I'm just realizing how tired I am, how overstimulated, and having going to bed earlier. Imagine that. I I feel really good. Anyway, so... (laughs) Silence is a relational gesture as well that says, you know what, Lord? I've been too busy for you. And I want to hear what you have to say. And in fact, if I'm honest, I'm desperate to hear what you have to say. Because when I don't hear from you, Lord, I'm feeling lost and scattered the whole day. Hmm. I want you to hear me on this. Silence with Jesus will not save you. It will not earn you extra points with God. Type A people, hear that one again. You're not better than other people if you practice silence and solitude. Silence is a gift. It's a grace from God. It's a grace that Jesus will meet with us at all. Do you realize how, I mean, it could be kind of arrogant to just say this. Oh, if I show up in silence, God will meet me. Isn't that wonderful? We have a God who wants to meet with us. We don't have to worry like, I wonder if I show up, if he'll be on time. He's there. He wants so badly to have a relationship with you and I. That's, that's good news. It's a grace that in silence, the Holy Spirit takes God's word and makes connections with how it works out in your life, in your work, in your relationships, in your friendships, in your hobbies, in that book you're reading, you, oh, I didn't notice that theme there. That's very Christ-like or whatever. And it's, it's in the silence that these connections are made, that God can speak. John Stackhouse points out that silence is not God's last word to Zechariah. Even though Zechariah doubted, God has been faithful. After Zechariah doubted, what happened? Elizabeth still was with child. That child, John, would still pave the way in the spirit of Elijah, and Jesus would still come. God is good, and your sin can't stop him. Amen? That's really good news. On top of all that, I want you to watch how silence for Zechariah worked its good in his soul. And let me just read this last part. This is Luke 1, 57 through 67. Nine months later, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives had heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. 
And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias, after his father. But his mother answered and said, no, indeed, he shall be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who was called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed. And he began to talk in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly on him. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And that's when we get the Benedictus, this amazing song that deserves its own sermon. So we'll stop there. God's punishment of silence for Zechariah was not vindictive. It was not meant to harm him permanently. His punishment of silence for Zechariah, I think it was a prescription. It was a prescription for what he most needed. Zechariah was literally pregnant alongside his wife, figuratively. Okay. Thank you, yeah. Zechariah was pregnant, in a way, alongside his own wife for nine months. He was pregnant with a word that developed over time as God worked on his soul in silence. When he first speaks after this long silence, he affirms his faith in the mystery of what God had revealed in Gabriel. Now, it's easy to affirm his faith because he gets his, faith, uh, his speech back eight days after John's born. So it really doesn't take a lot of faith to say, oh, I believe you now. I see my kid is born eight days ago. Right? What I'm saying is that he had faith that John would be whom Gabriel said he would be. He says, no, his name is going to be John, that God is gracious. Zechariah's second words that come out of his mouth are not explanations. I, and I was thinking about this, like if I could not talk for nine months, and I could not explain how that was going, I would so badly want to say all the things to you, all the things to my wife and kids that had been bottled up for nine months. The words, I love you. The words, I didn't mean to ignore you, but I was, you know, this thing was going on with my mouth. (laughs) But notice that Zacharias doesn't come out and defend himself. He doesn't come out with apologies first. He doesn't come out and try and explain what was going on all of this time. Instead, he comes out with words of praise for God, words of worship, and words of prophecy. Through the silence, Zechariah's words were rightly ordered. They were in the service of God, for God's glory, and communicating God's good news. I open this message with a story about what we learned from the people in the Klondike Gold Rush. They went unprepared into a northern winter. I talked about how maybe we could learn from them because they went before us and paved the way and made the analogy that those in the faith who have gone before us, we can learn from, like the story of Zechariah. But there's one more lesson that I didn't talk about in the beginning. Those 30,000 people who went north, they weren't the first ones who had gone on those trails. When they got to the shores of near Skagway, the native population talked to them 
and said, you don't want to go down that trail. You don't want to go this time of year. And they ignored the warning. And their greed made them press on through the harsh winter. And many of them died because they did not heed the warning. Will we heed the example of those who have followed Jesus before us? Will we learn the importance of silence like Zechariah? Or will we just keep moving forward unreflective, hurried, too busy to hear Jesus? In the end, I want to say this without reservation. This message, this is not about silence. This message is about Jesus. Silence never saved us. Silence didn't go to the cross. Silence didn't rise from the dead and give us eternal life. Jesus is the only one who did all those things. That same Jesus is calling you and calling me. He wants to talk to us. He wants to be born in you afresh. He wants to put all of his fullness of life in you. Making silence to hear Jesus and to receive Jesus is just an avenue to receive that one who wants to give his life to us. I want to close our time uh, with a poem from the 15th century that's anonymous. And then I'm going to pray. Um, It goes like this. Low in the silent night, a child to God is born. And all is brought again that e'er was lost or lorn. Could but thy soul, O man, become a silent night, God would be born in thee and set all things aright. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are uh, the kind of God who comes down. You come to us before we ever were looking for you. You continue to enter into the messiness of our life. And you invite us into relationship with you. You want to speak to us. I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, for grace. For aid in taking the time to come before you. Especially in the hurry and hustle and bustle of this season. Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to be still before the Lord and to receive him afresh into our hearts and to be led? Thank you that we are not left to walk alone wondering if we're going in the right direction. I bless you, Lord Jesus.